Hey, if you have your Bibles with you, I hope you do, or something that you're going to be reading God's Word, uh, I want to encourage you to make your way to the Gospel of Luke. Uh, we're going to be at the very tail end of chapter 22, beginning in verse 66, and we're going to kind of be working our way, well, we, we will be working our way through chapter 23 as uh, we'll be drawing out some passages. Uh, for sake of time, we're not going to have time to read everything that is here. I do encourage you to read it either this afternoon or sometime this week as we uh, get closer and closer to Easter, the celebration, not of our Lord's death, but of His resurrection, that He is alive, He is seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us, uh, declaring us as His brothers and sisters, as God's children, and so we serve a very mighty God that has come to rescue us, and as you can see, we are journeying to the cross um, I have mentioned that, you know, sometimes, you know, looking back, maybe could rename this uh, series as Journey to the Empty Tomb. Um, but we're walking through the Passion Week. We're in week four or five. Next week, we'll, we'll bring it all to conclusion as we look at the resurrection and the significance of all that and everything went into that. What is known as the Passion Week of Christ, and the word passion is to have a strong and a powerful emotion that compels an individual to do something. In this case, when we refer to this as the Passion Week, we're referring to the passion of God, that God had such a strong passion for you and for me that He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins, to take His wrath for our sins upon Himself on the cross, which we'll be looking at this morning, so that we might find redemption. That's what this time is all about, is God has declared into all eternity he loves you, and He is passionate for you, and there's nothing that He wants to keep you from being with Him forever. As we walk through these last several days of Jesus, as He's been preparing His disciples and been doing some ministries and some teachings and some miracles, we come to chapter 22 of Luke, which is going to set up the final events. We've observed how Jesus spent time with His disciples, the triumphal entry, the 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 Passover meal, which we now are going to gather around this morning and what we call the Lord's Supper is God invites us in to be His adopted children, His family, and we remember what Jesus Christ did to us. As the Lord's Supper concluded, the disciples and Jesus headed out to the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives, which Scripture lets us know that that was a place that Jesus frequently visited while He was in Jerusalem. It was a place where Judas, who has now already made the commitment that he's going to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, he would have been able to find Jesus very easily. Jesus did not go there to hide from what was about to take place in the next several hours. But as we dive into this day, there's some context or some background that would really help us understand the, the complexities of everything going on in Jesus' trial. The Jewish people, Jerusalem and Israel, were under the, the governing powers of Rome. Through Alexander the Great and, and setting up his conquest, the Roman world has expanded. It has taken place, and the Jewish people are living in constant opposition, in constant rebellion to the Roman government. They felt that they were living in this land that God had promised them, that God had told Abraham, their father, that this would be their place, that they took by the word of God through Joshua and the Israelites, as you read in the Old Testament of the book of Joshua, this would be God's blessing upon them, and as now they were back in the land to have a governing authority over them was a disgrace. 
And so their view is, you know, Jesus is coming, and this triumphal entry, even though Jesus said the rocks would cry out if they didn't worship him, this triumphal entry was that Jesus was going to come and restore Israel, the, the people of God, back in this place of prestige. He was going to drive out Rome. He was going to finally do what so many people had tried to do before Jesus arrived, but he was going to be successful at it. But when Jesus didn't do that, we see that the atmosphere in Jerusalem with the Jewish people begins to change. They begin to see Jesus just a little bit differently. Perhaps he's not this long-awaited king that we've been hoping for. Perhaps he's not the Messiah that so many people believed him to be. Perhaps he's not the Son of God and, and the Son of Man and the fulfillment of the prophecies. And as we come into chapter 22, the stage has been set for Jesus now to be handed over not only to the religious leaders, but ultimately to the powers of Rome. You see, even though the Jewish people were given certain liberties under Rome, they were allowed to have their Sanhedrin and their legislation, and they could, they could uh, withhold or uphold some of their laws over the people. The one thing the Jewish people did not have the power to do was to get the death penalty. And that's what they wanted with Jesus. The only way they could do that was if Rome ordered the death penalty upon an individual. Even, even though the Jewish law said there were certain things that if they were broken, that individuals were to be given the death penalty, the Jewish people did not have the power to do it. So they had to go to Rome, and in this case, they had to go to an individual by the name of Pontius Pilate. Now, Pilate was set in Jerusalem as the governor over the area. He would have been in charge of all the Jews, all the Samaritans, the, all the, the Roman individuals who lived in this area. He would have been in charge and people reported to him. But the thing about Pilate, and gives us a little understanding in the situation that Pilate is going to be put in on this day, what we call Good Friday, is Pilate has become on a very short leash. See, there have been a lot of rebellions in Jerusalem. People were rising up. You, you, we have uh, Judas in, in between the Maccabees, between the Old Testament and New Testament, and what is now the Jewish people celebrate the Hanukkah or the Festival of Lights. We have that situation and other rebellions that have emerged in the time that Pilate's been there. And as he's in this area, he's on this very short leash. And so when this, this Messiah, this Jesus comes before him, he has all this pressure that if he does the wrong thing, then Caesar is going to put him out of power. Now, as Jesus is gathered into the garden, the mob comes in and arrests him. They bring him to the Sanhedrin. They have this illegal Jewish court or Jewish trial because all trials under the Sanhedrin had to be done during day. And so as they bring him in, they begin mocking him and beating him and spitting on him and, and saying, well, who hit you and all this stuff. But for some reason, I guess they want to make sure they get something right. As they wait until do the official trial, we read in verse 66, when daylight comes. The goal of this trial was to get Jesus to confess something that would allow the Jewish leaders to take him before the Roman governor and have him put him on what is called the cross. Now, the Romans did not introduce crucifixion. The Romans took the idea of crucifixion from the Persians. But over the course of time, the Romans had perfected the art of crucifixion. When you think of crucifixion, we think of the cross, even though we may put it on our necklaces or our T-shirts or we may put bumper stickers on our cars with the cross. We need to understand we're putting a symbol of death. The cross was 100% successful in doing what it set out to do, and that was to kill the individual. 
And the Romans, over the course of time, had perfected the art of crucifixion that they were now torturous, torturers and, and murder or torture and death uh, professionals. They knew exactly what needed to be done, how it needed to be done, and what courses to take. But before an individual could even get to the cross, the Romans had a policy in which that individual would have to be flogged. It was a course of being whipped to death, and I'm glad we kind of excused the younger kids because this was excruciating pain. It was not just a regular whip like Indiana Jones, but this whip had, had what's called cattails, and on the, the tails there would be shards of glass and shards of clay. When a Roman individual would go to whip that individual, again, they were professionals at this, they would whip them so hard that these shards of glass and shards of clay would dig into the individual's flesh, and then they would rip it out, pulling out the muscle from the bone. This was to break the will of an individual. So that by the time they got to the parading through the city, all the people would look upon the individual being crucified by the Roman government and they would be given an example on what not to do. It was to drive fear into the heart of the people that if you cross Rome, this will be your end. We find in Scripture as Jesus ultimately makes his way to the cross or the place of skull, he had been flogged so bad that he did not even have the strength to carry his own beam in what we call the cross. But they had to have someone to pick him up. And that wasn't the end of it. The Romans had become so good at the cross and so good at humiliating an individual that after they flogged them, after they paraded them, after they humiliated them, after they stripped them down, most likely naked, maybe to a loincloth at very best, when they finally got to the place of skull, the place of Golgotha, the place of the final crucifixion, they would take the individual, they would spread their hands out as far as they could go, and each, each beam had certain holes already pre-driven. And so if an arm didn't reach a certain hole, they would stretch it out and they would break it out of its socket in the shoulder. They would take this nail, which would almost be like a, a railroad tie, and they would drill it through the hand. Now, when we read hand in Scripture, we have to understand that the Jews understood the hand from the wrist up. So if you just take your thumb and you press right into your wrist, there's a certain spot where the bones separate. You can see it on x-rays. It would be that part of the hand where the Romans would drill that nail through, and then they would stretch the other hand, and as they pulled it, if it didn't reach the other hole, they would break the arm out of the socket and drill the other nail into that hole. It would then they would drill the nails into the feet, and they would raise the individual up. And as they raise the individual up, we all know what gravity does. It began to pull that individual into its socket. Now, one thing the passion of the Christ got right is there ought to be holes in the ground in which the beams would fall into, so as the individual was already whipped and bleeding, as they were raised up into their place, the, the, the beam, the cross, would fall into place and it would just pull on that a little bit more. And one more act of humiliation that the Romans took beyond the Persians is they would put a little board underneath the individual who was being crucified's feet. The reason they would do that is they wanted this individual to suffer as long as as possible. They were making a point. In order for an individual to survive on the cross, because we all have that instinct where we want to live as long as possible, no matter how much pain we're in, the individual would have their, their feet on this little board. 
And they would continue to push themselves up and pull themselves up by the nails in their wrists so they could catch a breath. And then as they let their body down, their lungs would begin to collapse on their ribs. Ultimately, the crucifixion, the individual would die of suffocation and asphyxiation. They would basically drown. The individual would eventually lose strength to lift their bodies up. And their bodies would give out. But on this particular instance, the Jewish people knew that the Passover is to be celebrated on the very next day. The Bible tells us here in Luke chapter 23 that Jesus wasn't the only individual on the cross that day. There were two other individuals with him. But when they came to Jesus, his body had been poured and ripped apart so much that they did not have to break his legs, that he had already died. This is the cross. This is when we come to Friday, which is the ultimate conclusion of God's redemption plan for all of mankind to restore us back into relationship with Him. It was not cheap. It was not pretty. It was painful. It was hard to watch. Roman historians themselves called the crucifixion a barbaric act. And they grew up with it. But this is the means in which our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, would come to take away our sin. The word redemption comes from the word redeem, which means to pay a penalty or to pay a debt. Jesus' act on the cross, His his act leading to the cross, was to reveal how much debt of our sin costs before a holy God. It is painful, it is hard, and no one else can do what Jesus did. But in the beauty of this cross, God took something that is cruel and disgusting and barbaric, and He transforms this symbol into a symbol of hope and love and beauty. And so that's why as we edge closer to Easter and we come to Friday, we call this day, though it may seem hard to swallow, Good Friday. Because in Good Friday, God took the very worst of us and gave it beauty. He made it good. We're going to pick up in verse 66 as we begin into the trials and we lead up to this. And one thing I want us to really grab that God has really honed my heart in, and I know we've hit on this already in this series, but even jumps out even more as we walk through this, is that Jesus made the choice. There are four times, beginning in verse 66 of chapter 22 of Luke and leading up to Jesus' final breath, four times where Jesus is given this trial, four times Jesus could have denied who He was, what He came to do, and gotten out of this whole crucifixion. It begins in the Sanhedrin where Jesus is now in front of the religious leaders beginning in verse 66. They had arrested Jesus illegally under the cover of night in darkness because they were scared of the people, scared of an uprising, that the people would come and and rally to Jesus. So they arrest Him under the cover of night and they bring Him to the Sanhedrin and then wait until day until they begin the uh, official trial. But as they wait till day, they begin mocking Jesus, spitting on Jesus, slapping Him. And at the trial, they ask Him two questions. Beginning in verse 67, they said, If... You are the Messiah, tell us. 
Then if you jump to verse 70, they ask him a second question. Are you then the Son of God? The first question posed to Jesus is, are you truly the Messiah? And understand the question in which they ask. You may have the word Christ there in verse 67. Are you the Christ or if you are the Christ? The question means, are you the one to which God, our Father, the Father of Abraham, has anointed to come and bring redemption to the Israelites, the Israel nation? Are you that one? It's a question of who he is. Are you the one the prophecy spoke of? Now, as we look back into Scripture, we can see from the very beginning of Jesus' birth, even before that, that God had been prophesying and preparing his people for the moment that his son would come and bring redemption to come and pave a way back to him. And they're asking Jesus, they want to know, are you fulfilling the prophecy? Are you going to come and set up these covenants and these promises that God has given us? And the more, most important covenant in their mind was, are you going to establish the kingdom of David? Are you going to come and sit on this throne? Are you going to come and bring authority? Are you going to come and bring us back the prominence and power? But Jesus doesn't give a direct answer. Look there at the end of verse 67. He says, if I do tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. It may seem like Jesus is denying that he is the Messiah. It may be something we can gloss over, but if we draw out the meaning, we can see what Jesus is saying Verse 69, he says, The Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of God. These individuals are asking Jesus, Are you the Messiah? Are you the fulfillment of the prophecies? And the way Jesus answers is he answers with the word of God. When he refers to himself here as the Son of Man, he's pointing back to a prophecy coming from the Old Testament book of Daniel, which Daniel is given a vision, and he says, I continued watching in the night visions. And suddenly one like the Son of Man was coming with clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before Him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away in His kingdom, is the one that will not be destroyed. So what Jesus does here is He answers their question. He says, yes, I am the Son of Man. I am, I am the one that Daniel saw and he prophesied. In that time, I am the one with the everlasting days that have come with power and dominion and authority. But it's even a much bigger statement. He's saying, I am the fulfillment of all these prophecies. I am the one you want to be your Messiah. And in this moment, what we can fail to see is Jesus has this moment. Because he was 100% man, 100% God. We know he was overwhelmed by what was going to happen in the hours to come. He has this moment where he can say, no, I'm not. Religious leaders would have been overwhelmed with joy. They wouldn't have any grounds to go to the cross. Jesus would have gone to the temple, offered sacrifices and repented, proclaimed to all the people that I tricked you all, and he could have walked away. But he doesn't. Jesus makes a choice here that is going to define his life and his ministry and ultimately his sacrifice. You know, we're given choices every single day on how we're going to define our life. 
Are we going to define our life with the Word of God like Jesus does? Are we going to define our family and how we do our job, how we do our marriage, how we raise our kids, how we handle the income and and finances that God has given us? Are we going to do that according to the Word of God? Jesus defined this moment by the Word. What that means is our life is guided by God's Word, even though there may be things in here we don't necessarily like and things that are difficult to understand or even apply and other people don't understand. We're going to say, you know what? I believe you. I trust you, God, because you chose me. You love me, and I'm going to put my trust in your Word. I'm going to live by your Word. Let it be my guiding light. The Bible says when we do that, that's when we bear eternal fruit. Fruit that lasts. That's the fruit that comes out into other people's lives that they can see Christ in us. They can see the living word coming out of us. Here we find that we can either make a decision that we are going to be living for Jesus or we're not. Jesus makes this statement that I'm going to live for God. I'm going to fulfill what He has called me to do and He has preordained me to do. That is what my life is going to be defined by. But the religious leaders don't hear that. They're blinded by the Word of God. That's why they move on to the next question. Are you then the Son of God? It's important to note in Scripture that Jesus Jesus never identifies Himself as the Son of God. He never says, I am the Son of God. In Scripture, we find that God spoke it from the heavens when Jesus was baptized that the demons and Satan are fully aware of Jesus' relationship to God as the Son of God. We find the angels have proclaimed it and praised it upon Him. We find that Peter is given an understanding of it and confesses it when he says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. We find that Jesus, though, He never says it about Himself. Instead, it is something that God either reveals or the eternal beings, the, the heavenly creatures, know. So Jesus, he says, will you say that I am in verse 70? Again, we can read that and say, well, why didn't he just come out and say, yes, I am the son of God. But other translation says that you, you, or, or, sorry, you say that I am. He, he is saying that you've confessed this. You understand this already. You've seen the miracles. If we walk through the miracles of John, all pointing to Jesus' equality with God. That's what the son of God means, that I am of the same nature of God. I am the same equality with God. I have the same power of God, the same authority of God. And throughout Jesus' ministry, he's been revealing this. And so they have become aware of it. But again, Jesus is given a choice. He could have denied it right off. But instead, verse 71, the religious leaders said, we don't need any more testimony. And since we've heard it ourselves from his mouth, and so they usher him off to Pilate. Reason, again, they offer him, usher him off to Pilate is because they're wanting the death penalty. And they don't have the rule or the, the authority to do so. They have to have Pilate to, to say that this is going to happen. And so as they take him to Pilate, jump with me down to chapter 23 and to verse 3. We find another question, this time by Pilate. And he says, are you the king of the Jews? Again, it may not be a, a big question for us. But in Pilate's understanding, the Jewish people's understanding, it was that Jesus was going to come and rise up, that he was going to lead this rebellion. He was going to set his throne. He was going to be the king once again. He was going to restore power to Israel. Matter of fact, this is one of the three reasons in which someone could be crucified. 
So Jesus, he could flat out, in this moment, here's the man who has the authority to sign his death sentence. In this moment, he could have flat out said, I am not the king of the Jews. I am, I am not the king that they are looking for. I am not the king that they are expecting. But he doesn't. He says there, you say so at the end of verse 3. The reading means that that is true. So here is Jesus in, in face to face with a man who can sign his death warrant. And instead of backing down, Jesus makes the choice in that moment that he is going to go through with this. The third time, third time he could have backed out. But Pilate, he doesn't see any grounds for execution. The Bible tells us there in verse 4, Pilate even proclaimed it, I have no grounds for charging this man. And so he lets him go and he sends him off to Herod. Pick up in verse 8, chapter 23. Well, Herod, he was very glad to see Jesus. For a long time, he wanted to see him because he had heard about him and was hoping to see some miracle performed by him. So he kept asking him questions, just like the religious leaders, just like Pilate. But Jesus did not answer him. Herod was fascinated with the Jewish people. He wasn't a Jew himself, though he had married into the, the priestly line. He was fascinated with them. And was, you have Herod's temple, and, and he's in Jerusalem at this time just to celebrate the Passover, even though he couldn't, by Jewish law, celebrate the Passover. But he was there to just to go about the festivities and the celebrations. And they take him to Herod because Herod has the governing power over Galilee. And Jesus is a Galilean. So Herod, you have to make the decision on this. Now, Herod didn't have the power to crucify. He would have to send him back to Pilate saying, okay, I found the grounds to crucify him. Here it is. Now you can execute this man. But Herod has another thing in mind. He's heard about Jesus. He's, he's heard about the stories. And he, he had longed to see him, not just to look in his face, but he wanted Jesus to come into his presence and to amuse him. Show me a sign. Show me a miracle. He begins asking Jesus questions. And again, here before this man, all Jesus had to do is to turn into Herod's party and turn a little water to wine. We know he can do that. Make the, the, the food table just a mass so it could feed thousands. We know he could do that. He could, he could make people go blind or make people... Be given sight. We know he can do that. He could have done anything in this moment to amuse Herod, and he would have become Herod's new toy. Herod would have brought him in and, and fed him at his table, given him the lap of luxury for the rest of his, his, his earthly life. Jesus, at this moment, could have walked away. He could have chosen the pleasures of this world, but instead, the Bible says that he saw the joy that set before him. What was that joy? It was you. It was knowing that despite all these opportunities to not choose God's will for his life, God's purpose for his life, Jesus found joy despite the agony and the pain and the suffering that was coming. He found joy in choosing you and me so that we could be redeemed. Jesus didn't give Herod the time of day. He didn't say a thing to him, so they have to take him back to Pilate. See, the Jews 
the Jewish leaders, they were unrelenting. They could not ignore who Jesus was and what he did and what he said, but if they could just get him out of the picture. See, they were choosing themselves. They wanted to be in control. They wanted the power. They wanted people to look to them for all their wisdom and the way they lived their life. And Jesus was disrupting that. So they take him back to Pilate, and we find in verses 13 through uh, 25 of chapter 23 that there was a custom around the Passover when crucifixions were to come that that there would be a trade-off. That we we will trade one guilty prisoner for another if that's what the Jewish people wanted. And so Pilate brings a man by the name of Barabbas who was a rebel. He was one who had been opposing Rome and the, the Jewish people call out to release Barabbas and have Jesus crucified. And Pilate's in this tough position. If we understand Pilate's world where there's all these rebellions going on, he's in this massive crowd of Jewish people and he's got to make a decision. I can either let this man who I find no guilt in, I can let him go and possibly have this huge revolt in which I'll have to answer to Caesar, probably lose my position here in Jerusalem, or I can appease the crowd and I can remain where I am. See, Pilate had a choice too. He could live for the world or he could live for what he knew was right. And ultimately, he chose that he was going to live for the world. So he hands over Barabbas, and he has Jesus taken where he is to be flogged. And again, we don't need to go through the brutality of the crucifixion, as we already hit on it. But here's what I want us to understand, is Jesus chose to pay our price. The Gospel of Luke is really quite uh, mild when it comes to the crucifixion story. Look in verse 16 of chapter 23 there. Therefore, I will have him whipped and then released. Jump down to verse 33 of of chapter 23. When they arrived at the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on the right and one on the left. Jump with me to verse 44 through 49 of chapter 23. It was about noon and darkness came over the whole land until three because the sun's light failed and the curtain of the sanctuary was split down the middle And Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. Saying this, he breathed his last. And when the centurion saw what happened, he began to glorify in God, saying, this man really was righteous. And all the crowds that had gathered for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, went home striking their chests. They were proud of it. But all who knew him, being Jesus, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. Luke is very mild in the presentation of the crucifixion. You can read in some of the other Gospels. But we're told in Scripture that after Jesus is flogging by Pilate, again, that was an act of humiliation, that Jesus was so weakened that he couldn't even carry his cross to the place of skull. When he came there and they came to break the legs to get these men off the cross, we're told Jesus was there with two other criminals beside him. They had to break their legs, but when they came to Jesus, they could not or did not need to break his legs for his body had already given out, which was again a fulfillment of the, of the scriptures that not a bone in his body would be broken. But I want you to hear Isaiah's prophecy and Isaiah's vision of what he had concerning the cross. 
Isaiah writes in chapter 52, verse 14, this is what the Bible says about Jesus' crucifixion. Just as many were appalled at you, his appearance was so disfigured that he did not look like a man and his form did not resemble a human being. I've seen the passion of the Christ and I've walked out of that movie the first time not even knowing what to say and even now it's not one of those movies you sit down and eat popcorn with and then you see the brutality of that and, and the blood and, and all that but even the passion of the Christ according to scriptures tamed it down because I could still recognize that actor on the cross as a human being but the Bible says that Jesus was so badly beaten so badly flogged, so badly persecuted, so badly afflicted that he did not even resemble a human being. He was just flesh hanging up there. But Jesus chose this. He had ample opportunity, ample temptations to get out of it at any point in time, yet he chose it. And this is why Jesus is able to say, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. This is why the early believers proclaimed this truth and preached this truth, that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. See, Jesus paid it all. He paid all of our debt in such a way that it cannot be repeated. No other religious leader, no other religious group can even proclaim what Christianity proclaimed. All other world religions say that you have to do something. You have to work your way to God. You have to read a certain level on a ladder or a certain, certain level of nirvana or have a certain karma in your life. But the Bible says that God chose you and loves you so much that he came and paid it all once and for all through Jesus Christ. It's not about anything that you can do to prove yourself righteous before God. God already made it a way possible. That Jesus had to go through this pain and he had to go through this suffering. He had to pay this high price and he chose it willingly. Jesus proclaimed that no one takes my life from me. I lay it down at my own accord. And if I can lay it down, I can take it up. That's the power of God's love for you. That's the power of the cross. That's the power of Easter. It is God proclaiming that I have chosen you. I extend my love to you. And so now we have three choices. And we find them right here in Luke chapter 22, verse 66 through verse 49 of chapter 23. There are some people in this room and some people in your life who are going to be opposed to Jesus Christ. They're going to be just like the religious leaders and they're going to live in opposition. And you may be here today and someone has invited you to come to church and that's where you are mentally. Your heart is hard. You're opposed to God because you can't understand why God would allow certain things to happen in your life. You need to understand sometimes things happen because of sin. People make sinful choices and they bring pain upon our life. And so what we've got to do is we can either live like these people who are opposed to Christ and opposed to everything He stood for and they made that choice. And so you're here this morning and you are making the choice to be opposed to a God who loves you. Maybe you're here and you're making the choice to not understand. You're like Pilate. You just can't grapple with this God who loves you and this Christ who died for you and rose again and, and you know, absolute truth and relative truth. And you're a smart person. 
But all this stuff that you can't see or you can't contain in your hands, you just can't understand it, so you don't know if you can place your faith in it. The Bible says that salvation isn't about what you and I can figure out. It's simply about trusting that God has already figured it out. He's already paid the way. He's already paved the way back to Him. I don't have to understand Genesis to Revelation. All I have to understand, there's a God who is for me, not against me. He loves me. And He extends a gift of salvation to me, free, by grace, so that no one can boast. The third choice is we can be like Herod. Simply like Jesus because he amuses us. We like his songs. We like his fellowships. He's got fried chicken. We like the gatherings because people overall are pretty friendly. We like his t-shirts and his funny little slogans that we can post on Facebook. And we like saying that we stick up for something. And we're just really amused with Jesus. We're not actually in love with Him. There's one other choice we can make, and that is to be aware of why Jesus did what He did. Jesus came to save us. And the question for us all, and the question I've been dealing with all week, is how do I respond to the cross? Not just in this moment, How do I respond to the cross at 3 o'clock on Sunday afternoon? How do I respond to the cross at 9.30 on Monday morning? How do I respond to the cross on Wednesday when I'm tired and starting to get grumpy? And all I can think about is weekend's almost here. How do I respond to the cross when God brings that individual in my life that just irritates the living tar out of me? How do I respond to the cross when I look at the checkbook and I see the bills and they don't add up? How do I respond to the cross when when there's a temptation that lies before me and I can either cling to the cross and take up my cross and follow Jesus or I can try to figure things out on my own? How do I respond to the cross when my son and daughter aren't acting like good preacher's kids? Because, you know, preacher's kids are always good. How do I respond to the cross? Has it changed me? Has it changed me? See, if Jesus is the Messiah, as he says he was and the Bible proclaims, if he is the Son of God, as he said he was in the end and the Bible proclaims he is, if he is the Son of Man, yes, he is my Savior, but he's also my Lord, and that means he has full control and authority over my life. That's how I respond to the cross. The Bible tells us in chapter 23, in verse 42, Jesus on the cross between two criminals, one of them begins to rebuke him and say, you know, if you are the Messiah, man, save us and save yourself. And there's another criminal on the cross, and he looks to Jesus He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This man hanging on the cross, time was numbered. This man was not getting off the cross to go to church the next day. 
He was not getting off the cross to join a Bible study. He was never going to sing a song in the temple or anywhere. He was never going to bring a tithe into the temple or to a synagogue or to church. This man was never going to preach a gospel message. But notice what Jesus says to him. This man who could give absolutely nothing in the midst of Jesus' pain and agony and his sacrifice, this is what Jesus says. Truly, I tell you, verse 43, today you will be with me in paradise. This is the cross. It is the love, the grace, and the mercy of God for all who believe, not by anything we can bring to God or prove ourselves to God. It's simply because God has chosen us to save us, and he wants us as his children. And now God extends the invitation to you this morning. How are you going to respond to the cross? Have you been amused for a couple minutes? Are you just hoping for that next song? Are you ready to get out of here and go eat your lunch or whatever? Or have you come to this understanding that if I don't accept this gift of salvation, if I don't accept God's love, if I don't admit that I'm a sinner before a holy God, but God loved me so much, he sent his only son to die for my sins, and he died and rose again, that I could be forgiven. If I haven't done that, that I am lost. And I'm responding to the cross like everyone else except for this one criminal breathing his last few breaths. God extends his gift to you this morning. God loves you. And he went into incredible measures to save you and me. Now's the time. As Jackson come up and lead us, let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for loving us. Thank you, Lord, for saving us. Thank you that it is by faith. And Lord, I thank you for revealing to me. And Lord, I trust you. And Lord, forgive me those times I... I I haven't clung to the cross. I haven't been living out the message of the cross of love and grace and mercy and sacrifice. Lord, I made it, it's about, it's about me. I've been just like those religious leaders at times. Father, in this moment, this time, I know you've spoken to hearts. I know you've, you've brought your love and your grace and your mercy, but you've also brought your correction and your discipline because we're your children Lord, maybe there's some here this morning that have not been responding to your love properly. They haven't been loving you with all their heart, mind, and soul, and strength. They haven't been loving the people you've placed in their life as they love themselves. So you bring us to this, this time of repentance and confession, Lord, that we have not been clinging to the cross and representing the cross the way we should. But Lord, I also pray for the individual here this morning that is yet to make it be known that they believe. Father, you know who they are. You know their heart. Lord, I praise you that in this moment your spirit's crying out to their heart. To let go of trying to understand it. Let go of trying to be in control. Let go of just being amused by Christianity and the church. But Lord, just to come and surrender before you. Father, I pray for those individuals right here, right now that are having that battle going on in the name of Jesus Christ. I rebuke Satan and his demons that are trying to hold them to this place in their seat. Lord, by the power of your word, by the power of your spirit, you would give them the courage when we stand up that they would just walk down the aisle so they want to be saved. Father, thank you for choosing us. Thank you that this has been your plan from the beginning of time. 
God, we love you. Be with us as we come this time in response, and let it be pleasing to you. Praise all in the name of Jesus. Amen.